Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club on the Dana Buckler Show. I am your co-host, Mike Scott, once again, flying solo, hosting this particular episode. And this particular episode is going to be a bit different. It is not one of our numbered volumes. We are actually doing this one as kind of a special. It is the first of two Halloween-specific episodes that we are going to be doing here in the month of October because we wanted to make sure we got them out when we could give you guys all some movies that you could check out during Scary Movie Month here. Now, as always, I cannot do this show on my own, so I have asked a very special guest to come and join me. And for this episode, I am pleased to welcome my very, very good friend from the Amateur Auteurs podcast. You might know him as Other Mike, Mike Gallagher. Mike, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Mike. I'm excited to be on one of these, uh, the uh, I guess, 20th Century Movie Club or even a special because I, I've, I've really loved this special since it came out like in the inception like way way back and, and i think it's cool because for the listeners who don't know uh, i am 25 years old and i feel like that this segment was specifically geared towards people of my generation so it's exciting to be on uh, hopefully i can represent the generation well uh, i am a little nervous because I'm, I'm hoping because you don't know my picks and i don't know your picks so i'm hoping that i'm not an o for three as i've been listening it's a it's a uh, coin toss whether or not i've seen all the movies or i've seen none of the movies but that's okay. I love getting new recommendations. So I'm super excited to get into this uh, very spooky episode of, uh, of horror films. Yeah, and I think there's a decent chance that you will have at least seen one, if not, you know, all three of mine. So, and on top of that, I like it when people recommend movies that I haven't seen because it gives me uh, homework to go do. You know, I get to see, uh, I watch a lot of movies as anybody that's listened to the show knows. And so whenever somebody recommends one that I haven't seen, it gives me homework and I get to go watch a cool, you know, new movie that's, that's unfamiliar to me. Before we get started, Mike, why don't you tell us, and I'll give you a chance to plug everything you want at the end. But before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Amateur Auteurs podcast? Yeah, so Amateur Auteurs, um, it's a podcast that me and my twin brother, Brian, started, wow, man, I think it's been like four or five years ago. We were still in college when we started it. And it was just, it was something that we, we were really passionate about film and all things filmmaking. And we said, you know what, like, let's just start a podcast and just talk about movies. And, you know, the rest is history. We still we do have regular lives like this is a hobby but we have been trying to do new things with the show lately i mean it's mostly just a general discussion about any film that we choose there's really <laughs> sometimes it feels like there's no rhyme or reason to films that we pick it's just whatever we feel like talking about which i think is the beauty of just having your own show but lately we've been trying to expand with different uh, segments and um, just different focuses so like as of lately i've been doing the mcu movies with my buddy jake who's a huge super fan and i'm the layman so we're just having those two perspectives and as lately we have been doing a star wars uh, themed D game with just brian and i and we're just essentially creating an original Star Wars story. And that's just uh, trying to make it like a radio show. And that is just a project that is, is a lot of fun to do. Yeah, that's kind of our show. It's just it's a wide gambit of so many different things. But I think there's something for everyone there. But that's the show. Yeah, and I would agree. You know, you've been gracious enough to invite me on a handful of times. And I think we've done something wildly different every time I've been on. We've done, uh, you know, recommended kind of uh, movies that are so bad, but we still enjoy them. We did a Tarantino retrospective a while ago, and I've been listening to the new Star Wars 
podcast and it's been really terrific. If you're a fan of this show and you're not listening to the Amateur Auteurs, I, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to check it out. I, I don't think you'll be disappointed. And with that, Mike, let's talk some horror movies. So you brought this theme up initially and I had another one that's being recorded that's also horror. And so we decided to do these as special episodes so that we can make sure we get them out in October. Why did you pick horror? So horror is definitely something, uh, it's a genre that fascinates me, especially since, I mean, so much in the, in the moderns, I guess, of horror. I mean, I think there's a new horror resurgence in, the, in our modern day, but I love looking back at at horror because it, it feels like just like time capsules of whatever was going on in the period. And also from just like, I guess, not to get too deep, but like an anthropological standpoint of just of like how these films were made and film history. Horror fascinates me because a lot of people consider it like this is the gateway, the entryway into filmmaking in that, you know, horror films typically are very low budget indie films, and then they can either be this explosive hit or they can just kind of fade into obscurity, which, you know, you can get a cult following in that. But yeah, horror, was something that is always fascinates me. I don't think I'm clever enough to do horror because uh, I, you know, I dabble in making short films, but I don't think I <laughs> I would be very good at it. So I think there's definitely a mastery and an appreciation when people make horror films. Also, I figured since Halloween was around the corner that we could you know talk about horror films, and I also picked it because my first recommendation it was is like. I was like, how can I talk about this movie? Because it hasn't been uh, recommended on the show before, and I figured, well, it is a horror movie, so let's just focus on horror. That's perfect. You know, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. I, I, you were kind enough to send me one of your short films. And while that film is not horror, certainly the, the moody ambiance that you created in it, uh, I think could easily translate to horror. So I think you're, I think you're selling yourself short on whether you're, you could do a horror movie or not. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So Mike, tell us what your first pick is. So my first pick is, like I said, it was it was the reasons like how can I recommend this film within a theme, and so I went a little bit more vague with just the genre. I picked this film because of many different reasons, but a, a big thing is just how fundamentally important this film is to me, and uh, that film is Dawn of the Dead, 1978. I triple checked. This has not been recommended. I know you guys have talked about Night of the Living Dead and you've talked about Day of the Dead. So I'm going to complete the OG Dead trilogy by George A. Romero. I absolutely love this movie. And I guess I'll get into like the personal reasons why I love this. This is, this, and this might be, I don't want this to sound like it's an over-exaggeration, but I do genuinely believe this. I think this is the film of like why we're having this conversation today. That's because when I'd seen this film when I was 13 or 14 years old, and there was something about it that just sparked the eternal flame of, uh, of filmmaking and just appreciating film and being and becoming a cinephile. And it just gathered momentum, momentum, reading uh, film criticisms of this movie and just in general, just looking at the film medium and just appreciating it. And then even, you know, exploring podcasts and then just goes even more and more and thinking, you know, create my own podcast. Yeah. And then here we are. So this film just means so much to me. And then on top of that, then there's how this film was actually made and or just the, the filmmaking of of how it was made and also just the, the film itself. I guess I can also get into, Mike, when I say, like, I, I feel like an old man saying this, but <laughs> I'm not an old man. Like, they don't make movies like this anymore, and they really don't. When you look at the behind the scenes of how this movie was made, like, if you went up to an executive today and you said, hey, I have this idea for 
uh, we're going to film this. Uh, we have this zombie mil uh, film that's going to be in a shopping mall. And we're going to start the movie off in the projects, though, showing police brutality against minorities. And then we're going to go into redneck country and show, like, rednecks, like, killing zombies. And then we're going to get to the shopping mall, like, 40 minutes into the movie. And then also we're going to have, we're going to drive cars through the mall. We're going to have a biker gang come through the mall and do whatever they want. We're going to have stuntmen jump off of the second floor is into mattresses. It's going to be a fun time. We're going to have pies where it's going to be great. And I think executives would tell you to get the hell out of their office. This movie just has so much personality and it's all wacky. I know Dana said, I was actually re-listening the episode with Day of the Dead where, where Day of the Dead just has absolutely no humor. It's very bleak. This kind of really goes all over the place with its tone and that it's, it goes from bleak to comical humorous to bleak again to you know it, it's going all over these gambit of emotions and then you know and then you actually get into the the fun of the film i mean you can you can write essays and have podcast episodes and deep analysis into the themes of materialism that george Romero is getting in this movie just something about desensitizing the violence the gore of the film the characters what they all represent there, there's so much to pick apart in this movie and i absolutely love it and it's I, i'm so happy that i can be the one to recommend the original dawn of the dead on the 20th century movie club we've gotten some people asking us how night of the living dead and day of the dead have been recommended, but somehow we skipped over Dawn. And, uh, and so I'm glad you're plugging that hole so that people can, you know, for lack of a better term, get off my ass about it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I, I mean, this is obviously a terrific pick. This is, kind of maybe the ultimate George A. Romero movie. I, I'm a big Romero fan. I, you know, may he rest in peace. Uh, and I think this is, is the pinnacle of what he could do. This was everything that he brought to the table at its absolute best. Like you said, you get graphic violence, you get some really bleak, dark stuff, but then you also get the satire of they return to what they love and, and all of the things that, that the, the criticisms on consumerism and capitalism. So I think this is, this is really a terrific recommendation. If, if anybody hasn't seen Dawn of the Dead, you're missing out. Mike, I would be not doing us justice if I didn't ask you what you think of the Zack Snyder remake. Yeah, and, and I that's actually a really good point that you bring that up because I was actually thinking about it. I'm like, well, why is it the original Dawn of the Dead? Like, what about it sparks my interest? Because I have seen Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 remake, and I think it's a very competent, fun movie, but it's not the same. Dawn of the Dead 2004 is more of a superficial film which is a okay that's okay I, I do enjoy it for that and the zombie mayhem and just like the over-the-top levels of action because that's what dawn of the dead 2004 is it's an action movie with zombies you know you don't really have any nuances like you do in dawn of the dead 1978 i feel like i mean i don't know if this is an apt comparison but i feel like almost like dawn of the dead 1978 is like kind of like simon and garfunkel tune Whereas 2004's Dawn of the Dead is like heavy metal, like screamo music, like in your face. One is a little bit more like satirical. It, it takes itself a little bit more seriously where the 2004 remake is more just 
we're here to have fun. Like, this is what you want. I mean, I think it's just tip in the end credit sequence of Dawn of the Dead 2004 just really emulates that because, you know, the movie ends with a character killing themselves and then you just get screamo zombie music. And it's like, oh no, this is what you wanted. You wanted this over the top action. Whereas Dawn of the Dead 1978 kind of ends on a more hopeful note, but then it goes right back to the mall with the zombies and really hitting home the satire and the themes of the movie. So I guess in a long-winded way, I like the Zack Snyder film, but, and I think that was his, uh, his debut. So I mean, you know, good first effort on a film. Yeah, no, I just, I, it, I don't think it even compares to the 1978 OG classic. You heard it here, folks. 1978 is Simon and Garfunkel. 2004 is Limp Biscuit. No, but I do agree with you. I, I am a big fan of the 2004 Dawn of the Dead because I do think it is just a balls out fun horror movie. But there's no question that it lacks the satire and the subtext that Romero was bringing to the original. I would be lying if I didn't say, for me, I revisit the 2004 more often, but that's just simply because much like I am far more likely to listen to Limp Biscuit than something that challenges me, I can throw (laughs) it on and enjoy it without having to really think about it. But I don't think there's any question that the original 1978 one is a far superior movie. Credit where it's due, I think 2004 does have value, which isn't something that we can say about many horror remakes. Of course. Uh, Yeah. Anything else you want to add about Dawn of the Dead? No, I just, I absolutely love this movie. <laughs> so, I mean, I could, and I have, I've, I've, I've talked about this movie at length. It was literally the first movie review that I talked about on my podcast, like way back. And I think it was like 2015. I did. It's still a really highly downloaded podcast according to iTunes. So we've revisited it. I think it was last year, or two years ago, just to give it a better discussion. Talked about it at length with people off air. But yeah, I absolutely loved On a Dead, and I I couldn't even recommend it any higher. Like people need to see this movie. For my first pick, I am going to recommend a movie that I feel about as strongly as you feel about Dawn of the Dead. And similarly, it is a sequel to a movie that has already been recommended on the show by myself. And I have kind of been chomping at the bit to recommend this one. So I am going to recommend my favorite horror movie of all time, the second part of my favorite horror series of all time from one of my absolute favorite directors of all time. My first pick is going to be the 1987 Sam Raimi directed Evil Dead 2. Yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So for those who haven't seen it, Evil Dead 2 basically picks up ish right where evil dead one leaves off now evil dead one is a straightforward horror movie it is inventive and creative but there is no question that it is a horror movie however like you kind of talked about earlier mike part of the reason it's such a horror movie is because that was the way rainy and rob tapper and bruce campbell could start making movies they're real heart and soul lies in things like Marx Brothers movies and the Three Stooges and Looney Tunes cartoons. And for Evil Dead 2, they really finally get to start embracing that. I say it picks up ish because 
It's supposed to be essentially a direct sequel, but the problem is it was going to actually be more expensive for them to get the rights to use scenes from the first movie than it was to reshoot them. So Evil Dead 2 essentially becomes kind of a quasi-sequel remake of Evil Dead 1, which is one of the things that just makes it such the delightfully weird crazy movie that it is. Bruce Campbell returns as Ash Williams, our very, very put-upon hero, and gets to utilize his physical comedy skills far more than he did in the first one. He he really achieves Scott Adkins level physical prowess in this movie in some of the scenes. It is about a group of people who are in a cabin when they inadvertently read from a book Uh, In this case, it's been changed to the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, unleashing an evil force known as Kandarian demons, and all hell breaks loose, and really only Ash can stand in the way. Uh, I heard your reaction, Mike, so I'm going to assume you have seen and are familiar with Evil Dead (laughs) 2. Yeah, I uh, I love the Evil Dead too. This is actually almost my wild card pick because I was, I was you sent me the the list of all the films that were recommended, and I was thinking about oh, what should my third pick be? And uh, I was like, you know, I did the keyword search, and Evil Dead was definitely the first one that I picked. I'm like, oh, well, Mike already did that. I don't see Evil Dead two on here. Eh, let's let's see what else we got on here. So it was almost my wild wild card pick. And yeah, I, I love the Evil Dead. This was, I actually, Evil Dead 2 was my, was like the first film that I had seen of the trilogy and even before the show came out. And I absolutely loved it. I love the balance of, of comedy and horror, but uh, it was just so zany and I, I, it's, it's so indescribable some of these moments and just the, the images that are evoked on the screen. Yeah, like I said, I'm a huge fan of the original because just because it's like a straight straight up classic horror but Evil Dead 2 definitely elevates it to that much and I mean he does retcon uh, pretty much a lot of different things of the movie but yeah I absolutely love just the passion and, and Bruce Campbell just shines in in the movie one of my favorite scenes that I think like encapsulates the Evil Dead 2 is just when he's laughing and everything is laughing with him it's that perfect blend of just like kind of zaniness comedy but it's also quite horrifying at the same time when you're just watching ash go crazy and bruce campbell plays it off so well where he's laughing with you know the lamp that's giggling with him and then his laughs almost turn into just cries and then they go right back to just over the top zany comical laughter and i love a film that is able to balance those tones super well and make it work and then the deadites just look awesome in this movie you know uh, I just I love so much of this film and, and you could see it in just modern day horror. So I think there's a lot that that this film that people really take from this film. And I, and I love Evil Dead, too. I'm glad you brought up how good the Deadites look. For those who don't know, the special effects were done by K&B effects. The end being Greg Nicotero, who would go on to do the effects for The Walking Dead. Uh, this was one of his very first movies. It kind of put him on the map. My favorite horror genre is actually horror comedy. That is an incredibly difficult genre to pull off. One of two things typically happens. Either the movie skews too far horror, in which case the the comedy doesn't really land, or it skews too far comedy to the point that you almost really can't even call it a horror movie. Evil Dead 2, I think, is the archetypal horror comedy it threads that needle so perfectly because even the funny stuff is inherently horrific and sad 
And so it, it manages to just thread that needle the way that so few movies can. And that's one of the reasons I love it. It's one of the reasons I love Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi has an ability to just juggle different genres in a movie. Every few months, the scene from Spider-Man 2, which for longtime listeners know is my all-time favorite movie, goes viral where Dr. Octopus awakens. And it's right out of an Evil Dead movie. I mean, the camera angles and the shots and the way Raimi films it in a major blockbuster comic book movie. Like, only Sam Raimi can pull that off. And this is really where he becomes Sam Raimi as we know him. There's a lot of really creative, inventive stuff in the first Evil Dead, but this is the one that feels like the first fully formed Sam Raimi movie to me. And uh, I'm glad you agree with me because I, I just, I love this movie to death. Like I said, it's my favorite horror movie. It is a significant movie and series in my life because when my wife and I got together, we had a, and she lived in Vegas and they had Evil Dead, the musical playing. So we did a whole weekend where we watched all of the Evil Dead movies and then went and saw the Evil Dead, the musical, which is also delightful. We got all sorts of blood and goop on us. I, I still have in my bookcase, I have an entire shelf dedicated to Evil Dead. This is a, a hugely important movie to me. I love it. I'm glad that you picked this theme so that I had the chance to actually recommend it. Anything you want to add to it? Uh, it's definitely one of those movies that people have to see. I feel like that's, it's, I'm just going to say that at the end of uh, all of these picks is just something like I, I, especially the evil dead Two is just something truly special. And it's something that is kind of difficult to describe. Like you have to see it. Like, it, like try describing the scene of the headless ballerina dancer. Good luck. And then having someone like just describe that to someone and then be like, oh, you, you got to watch the movie. It, it works. And it does. So, yeah, I just absolutely love The Evil Dead 2 and people have to see the movie. 100% agreed. All right, Mikey, tell us your second pick. So my second pick, I, I feel like it might be a little bit of a, a controversial pick because I feel like the spectrum of whether or not people like this movie is all over the place and I can hear both arguments as to why I picked this the next film mostly because I think it's very important to the horror especially indie horror genre and I think it's and I would go out and say that I think this is a film that should be studied uh, and at least at least film uh, history film appreciation courses and that film is the Blair Witch Project came out in 1999 I think it's October so it just made the uh, the cusp of this list but yeah the Blair Witch Project this is a uh, definitely one of those films that I think people are going to be hit or miss on or hot and cold and where I, I kind of come from is that this is like the pure definition of like minimalist filmmaking I think the film was made for it was like I think somewhere in like the I could be wrong, like the $10,000 range, but then it made an astronomical amount of money. And people might say that it kind of reamped the whole found footage. I'm not going to say that. I mean, I there's obviously things, notably, I think, a cannibal holocaust. Where this comes in, as I think, is also just how its, its marketing really influenced how people viewed this movie. It was one of those films that people thought initially, now I, I was, what, four years old at the time, yeah, so I don't know how people really, if they really thought it was real. I don't know if this is if this is like a World of Worlds radio show type thing where it's like, oh, did people really think this is real, or it's just you know, as as the um, the legacy of the movie goes on, do people really think like, do I really know if people really thought this was real? I can't say for sure, but just 
that people went in and, and just that that rumor even started circulating, I think is super important. And that this was a film that's marketing was very heavily influenced by the, uh, the start, the early infancy stages of the internet. And I think the, the, the web pages are still active or at least just like archived. Yeah. I, so there's that entire aspect that you could discuss and delve into, but also I just really appreciate how this film was made in that, not a whole like you could argue like i think family guy did a joke where it's like nothing's happening nothing ha- nothing's happening something about a map oh they go into a house the movies end I've, everyone looks pissed like there's that joke i think there's something to say about just how little they actually had and just this like the atmosphere that they're able to create i mean you know you have it and it's all through the use of sound which i think this is a film that should be studied in those film intro classes about the manipulation of sound and just darkness because, you know, you have the slow escalation of, you know, oh, we hear some twigs breaking in the woods, and then we hear children laughing in the woods, and then we hear screams in the woods, and then someone goes missing, and then he starts screaming in the woods, and they go after him. And I think the ending of the film is ingenious in that we find this house, and I don't want to go into spoilers of what happens in the end of the movie, but essentially the characters get separated at one point, and we're picking up the sound from one camera, but we're hearing the screams of another character almost echoing. And then as she gets closer to the camera, her voice is, is picking up and picking up. It's creating this disorienting effect, but you can't, you, like, you don't know what's going on. Like, nothing's going on, but the, the sound and the lack thereof, it's, it's, I think it's ingenious how the film was made at least with the manipulation of sound. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with the Blair Witch Project. Mike, what are your thoughts on the Blair Witch Project? This is actually an interesting recommendation for me because as everybody knows that listens, I try and be positive about every movie that we recommend. I don't like crapping on movies. Hear me out when I say this. I really, really dislike this movie and also think that it absolutely... 100% should be on our 20th Century Movie Club recommendation list. You are right. Everything you said, this is a seminal, Im- massively important piece of film history. And if we're going to talk about movies that not just that we love, but that we think are important and that younger generations need to watch so that they understand the history of film, this is 100% one of them. I have a bit of a unique relationship with this movie because most people who listen know I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, the home, well, technically Park City is the home of the Sundance Film Festival. And This came out in 1999 when I was regularly going to Sundance. I was seeing 10 to 12 movies every year at Sundance. And I heard I actually didn't get to see this at Sundance. I thought I I had vague memories that I did, but then I remembered I, I didn't. I was acutely aware of the reputation of this movie at Sundance because as I was standing in line to watch other movies, everybody's talking about The Blair Witch and how it made people throw up the filmmakers astutely played that as because it was so scary. And then you later found out it was because no people got motion sickness from the shaky cam. You mentioned the box office and and the budget. Here's the thing. So this was shot for 35 to $60,000 by the time it was picked up at Sundance and they did post-production and all that. It was somewhere between 200 and 500,000. It made worldwide 248.6 million dollars. This was for a long time the most profitable movie that had ever been made. 
don't quote me on this, but I believe the first paranormal activity unseated it. And quite frankly, we don't get paranormal activity without the Blair Witch Project. So everything about this movie, I think, is amazing, except for the movie itself. I love the mythology that they created. You mentioned the marketing. I was acutely aware of the marketing. I was on the website all the time because I thought the mythology that they created surrounding this movie was so creative. I played the original PC games that came out in the early 2000s. I read all the books. I really, really like the Blair Witch Project. I just don't love the movie itself. But like I said, that doesn't mean that I don't think that it should be on this list. I think this is absolutely a perfect recommendation and is a movie that if you haven't seen, everybody absolutely needs to watch at least once in their life. Because you're right, Mike, Cannibal Holocaust, the uh, the, the last horror movie, there were other found footage movies before this one, but certainly no movie A, put found footage on the map on a mainstream level like this one, and B, did it with such a fantastic marketing hook. I mean, I know the Cannibal Holocaust story of they had to show up on a talk show to prove that it wasn't real, and that's pretty great, but it still, over here, was an Italian horror movie. This one was the 10th highest grossing movie of the year. Like it's insane how big this movie was in 1999. So I I think this is a terrific recommendation. Anything else you want to add to it? Uh, Yeah. I mean, for those, if they haven't seen it and this, or they have been hearing about it and they've been pushing it off and, but they, this is like the the call to, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. Just have an open mind about it. It's funny. I remember showing this movie when I was a freshman in college to my to like people I just met uh, it was around October and like oh like let's watch a horror movie oh Blair Witch Project and I just I guess I hyped it up because I was like oh it's like you know this happens and this happens and like this is and like I was being a film nerd describing it and then we watched the movie and I, it was maybe like seven of us and only one person actually liked the movie and and I at that point I was banned from I oh the irony I was banned from making uh, film recommendations in that film group anymore but yeah so just try and have an open mind about it try and because I like what you said mike and that you like the idea of the blair witch but not so much the movie but and that's i think that's a fair criticism of the movie there are definite moments of the movie that it's like okay this is kind of slow this is definitely slow burn if there's ever been a slow burn i think this is a just have an open mind about the movie yeah i do enjoy the movie and i'll i've I've said my piece about it i again would not be uh doing anybody any justice if i did not ask you about both Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows and the 2016 Adam Wingard Blair Witch. Uh, What do you think of both of those? Oh, God. Well, so Book of Shadows is, it could have been good. I kind of like the, it's like, I kind of like the idea. And Jay Skipworth from Filmstrip actually way back had done an episode on it. And he kind of goes more into like the history of what the movie could have been. I don't really re- remember it super well because the movie is just so awful. But yeah, I don't I don't really like Book of Shadows. It's just kind of it just it was made quickly. I think it was made like a year later, or less than a year later. So it was obviously just a cash grab. But I think the director actually had like some sort of vision for the movie. But the studio execs just said, nope, nope, just churn and burn. We got to get the movie out. So wouldn't recommend Book of Shadows, but I would recommend Jay Skipworth's podcast on it, on Filmstrip Pod. And the newest one, Blair Witch, uh, 
I mean, I don't know. It, it I, I like the hype around it and that it was like a secret project that was announced like randomly. And I think they were trying to build some sort of hype around it, but then the movie was just pretty disappointing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think I, for, I forget what the director, he was, uh, he was part of the crew that actually made like some really good shorts in the VHS movies. Um, like those, those horror films like VHS. Yep. And he also, he also directed your next and the guest, which I think are two of the best horror movies of the last decade. Uh, so I certainly was hyped for the new Blair witch. I like the premise of it. I kind of like the idea, but I, I feel like found footage, um, it could work. Like there are films that make found footage work ex- like extraordinarily well. And then there are films that don't really understand the medium. So I feel like, I mean, like Blair Witch, this re- like the remake of, of, I think it was 2017, 2018, kind of understood it because the director has worked with like found footage films, but I thought ultimately it was a little disappointing. Like I'd say a very weak, not recommend for that film. I have played the video game Blair Witch, like the most recent one, and that was disappointing as well. I just feel like people, they kind of lose the essence of why the first movie was really important and worked when it did work. Uh, other and they just and I feel like there's a lot of jump scares and it's not so much atmospheric. I mean, I think people that go camping in the woods, this movie was made for them. I mean, but it can be made for anyone. I mean, anyone that's driven by like a through a forest or just even like a clump of trees at the middle of the night with your high beams on. I think the essence of why the Blair Witch is scary is that you can see the first line of trees, but you can't see into the trees. And it's like, well, what if someone was looking at you through the trees? You wouldn't know. And I think that's why the first film was so so powerful in the scenes that did work, because you don't know. It's the fear of the unknown. And I just feel like the sequels and the games and, and what it, books and graphic novels and whatever just kind of fail to capture that, that, that atmosphere of like the fear of the unknown. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sequels were out. They're all right, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, no, I and I mean, I think that's fair. You know, I I have some affinity for Book of Shadows because I'm a big Jeffrey Donovan fan who stars in the movie. Uh, but you are right. If, if anybody researches the history of that movie, Joe Berlinger, the director, was really stonewalled and screwed over by the studio every step of the way. I love Adam Wingard. The Guest and You're Next, like I said, are I think two of the best horror movies of the last 10 years. But I was really fairly let down by the new one have not played the new game doesn't sound like i need to so uh i think with that we can move on to the next pick so my next pick is i've already recommended american werewolf in london and for those who don't know right around that same time there were two is specifically in 1981 there were two major werewolf movies to come out Uh, i guess technically three there was american werewolf Wolfen and my next pick, which is Joe Dante's The Howling, based on the novel of the same name by Gary Brandner. The Howling stars D. Wallace and Christopher Stone as a couple. D. Wallace plays a Los Angeles news reporter who is being stalked by the serial killer. She ends up in a situation where he essentially has cornered her he's killed and she suffers some pretty severe post-traumatic stress so her therapist recommends that her and her husband go to this place called the colony which is a secluded resort way out in the middle of nowhere where he likes to send his patients for treatment and there she meets 
several unique people, and uh, this isn't a spoiler, as she soon discovers, these several unique people seem to have some personality changes when the moon comes out. The Howling is another one of those movies that really threads that line between kind of horror and comedy, although this one clearly falls more on the horror line. It's got some spectacular makeup effects by the legendary Rob Bottin. Mike, have you ever seen The Howling before? Unfortunately, I have not. And furthermore, that's unfortunate, as I've seen the sequel to the film, The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, uh, starring Christopher Lee. So <laughs> I have not seen The Howling, un- unfortunately, but I- I- it has been in my, um, in my sights, actually. It's been on like my-, my queue of wherever I can find it. Uh, it's just- I guess it's just one of those movies that I haven't gotten around to. And The Howling 2 was more of just like a- I-, I watched a bad review of it. And then I was like, well, I got to see the movie. And I-, and I sought it out somewhere. But yeah, The Howling I have not seen yet. Well, and I'm glad you bring up The Howling 2 because The Howling 2 is a bit legendary for people who haven't seen it because it has 80s bombshell Sybil Danning essentially uh, showing her upper half repeatedly in the closing credits. They, They edit the closing credits to a music video and there's a scene where she gets naked and they just cut it and reveal it several times. So it's kind of legendary for that. I'm glad you brought up the sequel because The Howling is actually a fascinating series because I'm not sure there's a horror series where there is such a depreciation in quality from the first movie to the second movie to then all of the subsequent sequels. I think there's seven or eight Howling sequels. And Howling 2 has value. I think there's some decent stuff in it, but every other sequel is, I think, borderline unwatchable. Some people might disagree with me, but it's kind of sad because I think it has tarnished the reputation of the original because the original is actually an incredibly terrific horror movie. And so it is one, Mike, that I I do recommend that you check out this month uh, of October because I think you'll really like it. There's a lot of really good stuff. And again, if nothing else, Again, somewhere, I always say this, somewhere Dana Buckler's ears are perking up (laughs) because I'm about to mention practical effects because the practical werewolf effects in this are, I think, as good, if not better, than the ones in An American Werewolf in London. What Rob Bottin does here is just absolutely staggering uh, as far as how the werewolves look, how they transform, everything that happens. So it's a uh, it's a really, really terrific, fun movie. If you like Joe Dante, uh, people who like Joe Dante know that he, much like Sam Raimi, is a big Looney Tunes guy, and there's a little bit of that sensibility in there. But the movie is played straight. So even though there's funny stuff, the movie's played straight. I think it's really good. I, I think you'd dig it. And I think anybody else listening will dig it. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, it's funny. Uh, you said like Dana's ears perking up. I am, and and you said that the uh, practical effects are better than an American were- Werewolf in London. And I was like, okay, I got to look up some of these pictures now, uh, or just uh, some something of the behind the scenes, or just what these effects look like. And so far, I'm pretty impressed. It's definitely going to be a movie that is uh, going to be like first on my queue to watch this month in October. But uh, but yeah, no, awesome. That's a great recommendation. All right, man. What is your third and final recommendation? So my final recommendation is uh, I, I was going back and forth on like what 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 is the third? Because the Dawn of the Dead and the Blair Witch Project 
were definitely two that I knew right off the bat that I was going to want to talk about. And then I was just kind of just mulling over some horror movies. And, you know, I looked through the list and a few of them were already, you know, chosen. Like I already mentioned the, the first Evil Dead. And, and, and then I thought of this, this next film. And at first I thought it was, oh, this is, this is going to be a, like a, a gimme. You know, it's, it's one of those classic films that everyone I feel like has seen. But then I, I started talking to my coworkers and my friends and I started talking about this film. And a lot of them have, they didn't even hear about it. They, don't, they didn't know what it was, let alone had seen it. And then it's funny because I asked about films that, you know, have been more or less directly and like take a lot of inspiration from this film and they've seen them. And I'm like, okay, well, man, you, you kind of understand the gist of where this film is going. And I guess it's, I have to remember that, you know, sometimes gimmies for cinephiles aren't necessarily on the, on the radar for, you know, average moviegoers, which is okay. So I feel like a lot of people listening to this, this episode in the show, this is going to be like, oh, of course, moment. Just, it's, it's important to remember that, you know, sometimes average moviegoers, this might not be on the radar. And that film is John Carpenter's 1982's The Thing, the, the classic remake of The Thing from the Other World from the 50s. This film if the last movie had Dana's ears perking up, I think they're smoking right now because, you know, the practical effects of this movie are something to stand the test of time. They don't necessarily look super realistic, but there's got so much personality and they also don't need to look realistic because it's so horrifying and gross just from the the practical standpoint alone. But, but then you get into the actual story, you know, an American research base in Antarctica is uh, being plagued by a shape-shifting alien. In the whole film, you don't know who's an alien, who's not, other than Kurt Russell. I feel like is, <laughs> since he is our protagonist, you know for a fact that Kurt Russell is okay. But for the other eight or nine, ten people that are there, you have absolutely no idea. And so the, like when I was mentioning the films earlier, I mean, I think of Tarantino's, you know, The Hateful Eight. I feel like The Hateful Eight is almost like a combination of The Thing and Agatha Christie. And so all my coworkers have seen The Hateful Eight, but they haven't seen The Thing. I'm like, well, you should definitely go see The Thing because all the inspiration, like you're going to be like, okay, well, yeah, I see where this is coming from. And I just love the whole paranoia of the film. And it just makes you feel unsettled the whole time. And then you see these amazing practical effects. I mean, I think of, I'm not, again, not giving spoilers about, you know, who turns into The Thing and who doesn't. But I think of the... uh for lack of a better word, like the Venus flytrap with the dog when it just curls back and you see its skull and its tongue and all this gross stuff, the spider head. And then when like the the stomach jaws, I guess that's another way of saying it, the green oozing blood, it's just all of this mastery. And then, you know, the classic, the end of the movie, which I don't want to get into because it's a spoiler, but just the question of like, what if? Yeah, I absolutely, uh, the thing is definitely a movie that, I feel like I watch it every October, but I I almost return to it every three or four months because I think that from a screenwriting perspective, you could learn a lot from just telling a story and also from a visual storytelling perspective. You can learn so much from this film. And I haven't seen all of John Carpenter's work, and I would probably argue that this is my favorite film of that he's made in his repertoire. I am so glad you recommended this one. <laughs> so I, I have a problem as listeners know on this podcast of trying to figure out how not to recommend every John Carpenter movie. Kristen a while ago helped me out because she recommended Christine and I have not been recommending this one because I have, I just don't want to be the guy that recommends every John Carpenter movie. And so I'm glad you 
you absolved me of that problem and yet I still get to talk about the thing. I think the thing is, in my opinion, the greatest horror movie of all time. Evil Dead 2 is my favorite, but I think that the thing is the greatest horror movie of all time. I think it is Carpenter's greatest movie. I love Halloween. Everybody knows I love Carpenter, but I think the thing in multiple ways is next level. You're right about the special effects, everything. And again, same special effects as the howling Rob Bottin, uh, bringing his a game to this doing just absolutely staggeringly impressive stuff. But what I really love more than anything is the way Carpenter and the actors are able to cultivate a real sense of paranoia. And that is a real sense that is conveyed to us as the audience of who can be trusted and what do you do when you're this isolated and this alone and you can't trust a single person. Again, yeah, the the less we talk about what actually happens in the movie, the better. But this is... Like I said, I think the best horror movie of all time. I, I, I think the thing is is fantastic. And for those who don't know, it was a massive box office failure when it came out. It's one of those movies that shows that sometimes the benefit of hindsight is a good thing because when it came out, it was a bomb. It, it put Carpenter in, in the doghouse. Part of the reason that he had to do Christine was to try and get out of the doghouse of the thing. And now I think most people rightfully consider it a classic. And uh, I certainly agree with it. So thank you so much for recommending this one because I, I can get another Carpenter movie on the list without me being the one to have to recommend it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. And, and the point you mentioned about how this was a, a, a bomb at the box office, you know, I, I, I like looking back at those films that either critics didn't like, audiences didn't like, both, they bombed, but they're, they're like classic films. And this is one of those that... I, every time I, I watch it, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of the, those critics of just, what, what didn't they like about this? I think Roger Ebert, I, I could be wrong, but I think he was saying it was just pretty much like exploitive and just, it was just nothing but gore and just devoid of emotion, which, I mean, he's, <laughs> it's not that it's devoid of emotion, but I, there is something to say about just the cold, callous nature of the film, but I, it's just very interesting of just how people were just so opposed to this movie. And then I'm thinking about like, well, the time period it came out, like the slasher movies, but this is something totally different, which may be why uh, people didn't get it at first because, you know, we're just in the midst of, you know, the eighties is the, the slasher decade essentially. And maybe there's people miss something. And it, it's kind of funny now I've heard people talk about this movie and they've met John Carpenter and they say, Oh, I love the thing. It was great. And he says, well, where the hell were you in the eighties when I, when I needed you to see this, when I needed people to see this movie, I wasn't even the the thought of Mike wasn't even conceived yet. So, but if I was alive during the eighties, I would like to think that I would go see this movie. This is definitely one of those movies that if I, well, I mean, you know, we're still in the midst of uh, the COVID pandemic, but, and I know movies are still like movie theaters are opening up, but I'm not going to any movie theater. But uh, hopefully in the future, if I ever see this at like AFI and there's a screening of it, you bet your ass I'm going to buy a ticket and go to the movie theater and see this on the big screen. This is definitely a film that I want to see on the big screen. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you like this pick, Mike. Yeah, no, I love this pick. And, and you really 
hit the nail on the head with something that was kind of prevalent in Carpenter's entire career, which is he was always about five to 10 years ahead of the game. And so, so many of his movies were less successful than they should have been because he was just, he was too far ahead of the curve. I think a movie, you know, you look at modern A24 horror movies, Hereditary, Midsummer, stuff like that. Yeah, The Thing has a lot more blood in it, but other than that, that's an A24 horror movie, man. It is mood and atmosphere and everything. It's just nobody was doing what Carpenter was doing at the time he was doing it. And so he paid the price for that. Luckily, he still made the movies and we get to reap those rewards now. So great fucking recommendation, man. I love it. It is... Even though I recommended Evil Dead 2 uh, and that is my favorite horror movie, I'm going to tell everybody, in my opinion, if you watch one movie that we recommend this episode, make it the thing. Uh, Because that is, it's a masterpiece. An absolute fucking masterpiece of cinema. All right. Uh, Anything else you want to add? Nope, nope, that's it. All right, perfect. Then I'm going to go into my third and final pick, which is a little bit of a memorial to a director that I have always had an affinity for that we lost earlier this year. A director that uh, I think got a lot of shit during his life and career, but it was undeserved because I think that every movie he made, regardless of whether it was good or bad, was uniquely his own and had a unique vision that only he could do. And that director is Joel Schumacher. And so my third and final recommendation is his 1987 horror comedy again, because like I said, I like horror comedies, The Lost Boys. Uh, The Lost Boys involves a family, Mother Lucy, played by Diane Weist, brothers Michael and Sam, played by Jason Patrick and Corey Haim, who move to a town in California called Santa Carla, where they discover that the young ruffian gang, if you will, turns out to uh, have some unique nighttime activities. Uh, The leader of the gang is played by a very young Kiefer Sutherland. We also are introduced to two comic book store owning brothers, played by Corey Feldman and Jameson Newlander, who claim to know what's going on and claim to know how to stop it, but may or may not be full of shit. Mike, have you ever seen The Lost Boys? Yeah, I've seen this movie back in, I think I was like a senior in high school, and I remember liking it, but this is definitely a movie that I have to revisit during this month of October. Uh, I remember the brief memories or the vague memories that I'm getting of it is I remember liking it and not knowing like I remember going in not knowing what it like not really knowing what it was about other than like the like a basic summary of it I remember watching and just kind of absorbing it and just taking it in and actually really enjoying it but I don't know if I could uh give a good uh description of it now because it's been i think that's that was what over six years ago so um i just remember liking it and i think that this would be a very apt recommendation for the show but as opposed to any details they're a little fuzzy what i love about this movie is it a it's as expected from schumacher it's stylish as hell with an absolutely killer killer soundtrack but also it it really balances it's kind of got one foot in the world of sort of that 80s high school, teen high school drama comedy that was so popular at the time, and one foot solidly in 
a horror vampire story. And Schumacher, again, really, really manages to balance that, you know, thread that needle in a way that a lot of other people couldn't pull off. Jason Patrick has never been more leading man material than he is in the movie. Kiefer Sutherland, if you watch it, you can absolutely see a movie star in the making. Uh, And it's, again, for those who are of the younger generation, you might not realize how big of a friggin' deal the Corys were in the late 80s, early 90s, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. But this is really kind of the start of the Corys, and they play off one another so incredibly well that you can kind of see why they became a thing. I, I really think this is a lot of fun. I will warn people, the movie is 1987 as hell. The clothing styles and the hairstyles and everything are 1987 as hell. So don't let that sort of be a a roadblock to it. Just think of it as a, a period piece, right? I think the movie's a lot of fun. No spoilers, but I will say it has arguably the greatest final line of any movie. And I am including Casablanca in that. I'm not sure whether Casablanca or The Lost Boys has a better final line in a movie. Uh, So I really do hope, Mike, you check this out, and I hope everybody listening who hasn't seen it checks it out. Oh, I de- most definitely will. It's, it's, uh, I think I actually, I have the DVD somewhere. So I'll def- it's definitely going to be uh, up there with the howling for this month. That brings us to the end of this Halloween special of the 20th Century Movie Club. And as always, we like to let you know where you can see these movies. We use the Just Watch app and website. It is not sponsored, although Just Watch, if you want to throw us some money, we won't complain. Uh, But we have found that it is the best, most accurate source to find out where movies are streaming. As always, these places you can find it are current as of the time we're recording that doesn't mean if you listen to this down the road they'll be accurate so please go to justwatch.com or check out the app to figure out where the best place to see it is so mike where can people find your recommendations so dawn of the dead unfortunately i couldn't just using the the uh, just watch app i couldn't find it streaming anywhere i'm sure you could buy it somewhere on amazon uh i <laughs> i have um the physical media copy i have like the anniversary edition which is, has like the three versions of the movie i have a, an, a, a regular theatrical dvd so i have this i'm sure it's available somewhere so the blair witch project seems to be you can rent it on really any uh major platform i see it on uh redbox i see it on amc theaters on demand apple tv amazon youtube fandango now voodoo like you know the big ones and the thing is available to stream on uh the star on stars but you can't again uh rent it on any major platform apple tv amazon youtube uh, you can buy it if you want on those same ones uh, voodoo is also on there direct tv so at least the blair witch and the thing are available to stream on on the main platforms or at least the the rent them on those major platforms and the thing also has a very nice blu-ray from shout factory that i i can strongly recommend so if you like physical media check that out and pick up that disc yeah dawn of the dead so for those who don't know the rights for dawn of the dead are for lack of a better term just a giant clusterfuck and so for a movie that's so seminal 
it shouldn't be as hard to see as it is. It rarely streams. It's never been, uh, as far as I know, released on Blu-ray or 4K. So DVD is your best bet. You can find used copies on Amazon and eBay, uh, but that's going to be your best bet to find it. Yeah, I'm looking at Amazon right now. Just the first one, uh, I just saw, I see Dawn of the Dead, this, the special Divi Max edition. Uh, this is saying it's $50, but now I'm looking, and then you just immediately look under for used offers, and the highest one that I see is 10 bucks. Yeah, that seems to be your uh, best bet for that. Or, ooh, man, Dawn of the Dead Unlimited Edition. If you want to drop $200, you can go for that. I'm glad I got my Ultimate Edition when I guess it was way more affordable than that. But yeah, you have, it's, it's more of a, a physical media uh, copy for Dawn of the Dead. And I just looked up, folks, just so you know, that there is a 4K and Blu-ray release of it. It's been delayed, I would imagine, due to COVID to November of 2020, but there is a 4K slash Blu-ray release coming out by the end of 2020. So if you want to see Dawn of the Dead, that's probably going to be your best bet. Ooh, I'm excited about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, Second Sight Films is is who's putting it out, so that will be uh, that will be a big buy for a lot of people. My three recommendations: Evil Dead Two, likewise, is a Shout Factory release, so you can get it on Blu-ray. It, Evil Dead Two has been released arguably more than any movie ever on physical media, so there's a bunch of versions out there. But if you want to watch it for either free or not very much money. If you have a Hulu subscription, it is streaming on Hulu right now, or you can rent or purchase it on any major streaming service, your Apple TV, your iTunes, your Amazon. The Howling also has a magnificent Shout Factory disc, but is available for rent or purchase on Amazon. And The Lost Boys is available for rent or purchase on all of your major streaming services. So, if you want to see these movies, you ain't going to have a hard time doing it. All right, Mikey, uh, plug some stuff, man. Where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find us uh, on Twitter at AuthorsPod. You can email us with any questions, comments, concerns, uh, recommendations at the Amateur Authors Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, as far as I know, our show is available definitely on SoundCloud. That's mostly our streaming um, or like our host website. It's also available on iTunes. I think it's available on like random things just because of SoundCloud and it just goes on to Ether. I don't understand how that works. People that understand that have told me that they've uh, they found my podcast or our podcast through uh, just different apps. But specifically, I know that SoundCloud and iTunes are probably the best ways and easiest ways to find it. Um, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, tune in for movie reviews, but mostly... As of late, we're going to be mostly focusing on the Star Wars, our original story, the legacy of the frontier. So, yeah, check it out, guys. And, Mike, thanks again for having me on. It's been a blast. I always love talking movies with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's it's always a joy when you and I get to uh, shoot the shit about movies. You can follow me on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. You can also follow me on Letterboxd where I'm at Hibachi Justice where you will also find the continually updated list of movies we've recommended on the 20th Century Movie Club. So if you want to see what we've recommended in the past, you can check that out. You can follow our namesake and the man who uh, graciously allows me this platform to talk to my friends, uh, Dana Buckler. You can follow the Dana Buckler Show on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow him on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. You can follow 
us on Facebook. We have a Dana Buckler Show Facebook group. We are a Patreon-supported podcast, so if you want to throw us a couple of your hard-earned dollars on Patreon, you get early release episodes, and we will also be bringing you some more content here in the near future on that so you get even more of your money's worth email us at the dana buckler show at gmail.com and the podcast can be found literally everywhere podcasts can be heard uh half the time i stand on a street corner and just shout the podcast out that's how much we want people to hear it if you can't remember all of those you can also just go to linktree slash dana buckler show and find all of the links mike gallagher thank you so much for joining me tonight. That was a blast. We made some hella good recommendations on this episode. So uh, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. And uh, for everybody and for Dana, I am Mike Scott. Everybody have a good night.